This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. World War II Radio Podcast. Today our episode consists of two segments. The first is a news update and commentary from Alan Scott over Chicago's WGN Radio as it aired on March 29, 1942. Alan Scott had a long career in radio in Philadelphia and Chicago, but was probably best known for his time hosting various children's and news shows on local Philadelphia television in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. He was, according to many sources, the first person to ever appear on television 1,000 times. The second segment is the March 29, 1942 episode of NBC's Behind the Headlines, with this one focusing on the importance of New Zealand to the war effort. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help to continue to produce the podcast, and thanks to those of you who have already donated. So thanks for listening. Enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here is Alan Scott with the Heart of the News reporting for Harvester Cigar, America's famous five-cent cigar value. Just as a good chef makes a superb salad dressing by blending the right amounts of various ingredients, so do we make one of the finest of cigars by skillfully blending carefully grown and selected tobaccos. That's the secret of the goodness of each Harvester cigar. They're blended. Prime, well-cured American leaf blended with choice Heart of Havana to make the lightest, mildest smoke you have ever tasted. So make your next cigar a harvester. Watch how slowly and evenly it burns. See that long ash begin to form, the badge of a truly fine cigar, then enjoy its fine, rich aroma. Yes, harvesters are made by experts for experts in cigar smoking. That's why so many thousands of men say, Harvester is America's greatest five-cent cigar value. Hello, this is Alan Scott with a quick summary of the late war news just in on the wire, and it covers these highlights. There's been a big battle on the Kalinin front in Russia. The Russians claim a significant victory. London saw some hippity demonstrations in Trafalgar Square today, and the cry was for action against the enemy and a second front in Europe. That raid of the commandos on Saint-Nazaire now looks good enough to cost the Nazis a full year of repairs, and the RAF is still at it tonight. A Burma battle at Taungu, with the Chinese giving the Japs the kind of opposition that counts. And our own forces of American and Filipinos under General Wainwright in Bataan took the heftiest slugs the Japs could hand out today and threw them back on their heels. A farmer who has to know what tomorrow's weather will be 
somehow comes to develop a special sense in that direction. He uh, squints at the horizon or rubs an old ache in his knee or observes the nervousness of the birds or the livestock, and he says, let's get the shutters barred more. There's storm coming. I guess we all have an unused apperceptive mass lying around in the attic of our senses, ready to be called on when we need some of it. When black storms of destruction thunder across the world, when wars and revolutions blow the tight shingles of isolation off the roof, I guess we all develop a sort of um, rheumatic sensitivity to international weather changes. There are no neat scientific barometers by which to measure the direction and ferocity of the storms of war, so we've got to rely pretty much on the homespun signs. You get so you can feel it in your bones. You judge by that sharp recurrent pain across the shoulders of page one or the aching corn of a short paragraph among the editorials. Sometimes it's just something you hear and the funny way it sounds when you say it over to yourself. And sometimes it's just the moving figure of a man of dapper presence like, say, uh, Franz von Poppen. You've seen those crime thrillers at the movies. Maybe it's the tall, thin man in black whom you see only from the rear with his collar turned up and his hat down over his eyes. Or the strains of some macabre tune by some unseen whistler. And then soon after, bang, the crime explodes. When the scenario establishes the theme, you get to know it's coming every time you see the tall, thin man in black or hear the somber whistling. The tall, thin man in black who whistles the solemn prelude to disaster is a real-life role to a man like Franz von Poppen, Hitler's ambassador to and from Turkey. Pretty slick guy. Not having sprung out of the foreheads of the Zeus's who write scenarios for Hollywood, he doesn't always use the same device to tip off the audience. I don't presume to know what his shuttlings between Ankara and Berlin mean. I'm not that smart, and I'll leave it to the smart birds to fathom. But I guess none of us needs a diplomatic pouch to hit him in the neck to know that when Van Poppen moves, keep your eye on the spot. The crime will soon explode. I'm not saying that because I don't like the guy on general principles. Maybe I don't. That's neither here nor there. Never met him. All I know is that when a thin little routine item on page three announces Van Poppen's return to Berlin from Turkey... It's for something more than the routine pep talk and report to the boss. And it's therefore not the thin little routine item it appears. I know that because when Poppin has been a prelude whistler from way back, and it stands to reason that his lips are still moist. Come to think of it, I imagine the mystery thrillers would take Van Pop to their bosom. You know the way they have of making a villain the fellow who looks least like one. That's Van Pop to a P. A diplomatic smoothie, if ever there was one. Gray-haired, thin-faced, tight-lipped, made to order and as sprucely dressed as a window display. He is also, oddly enough, considered by many to be the sharpest ballroom dancer in Europe. This may be the natural result of long years of stepping on eggs and waltzing between candles. He probably has some pompous official title. Unofficially, he's the Nazi specialist for political dirty work. Think back. In 1914, he was military attaché to the German embassy in Washington. A year later, it was revealed that he and a naval attaché at our capital had been cooking some plain and fancy sabotage and espionage that would make your hair curl. They were both chucked out on their ear. When he was trying to slip through the British blockade on his way home, he was grabbed and his papers confiscated, among them a few interesting items, to wit, 126 check stubs of payments to dynamiters and saboteurs of every description. A few months later, a federal grand jury indicted him for a plot to blow up the Welland Canal. Then they found that he'd been working on Pancho Villa down in Mexico trying to get at us that way. The criminal indictment was lifted in 1932. By that time, Van Poppen had done himself right well. He'd become leader of the centrist party and owned the party paper. He was a member of the Prussian Diet and a close friend, or at least a mouth close to the ear of von Hindenburg. He talked his chief into firing Brüning and putting him in the chancellor's seat, but when Poppen was just keeping it warm, he had it all worked out. 
how he would betray his own party leadership and worm Hitler into the top spot. When the torrent of blood was spilled in 1934, Olaf and Poppen's colleagues were killed. His secretary was killed, but not von Poppen. Then he went to Austria, and a low hum of expectancy shrouded the audience. They suspected something was up. They were right. The Dafus murder, the hitler schuschnigg table-thumping episode at Berchtesgaden, and then the tragic last gasp of Austria. Two months after the Anschluss, the body of another of von Poppen's secretaries was found floating in the Danube. Tough job being secretary to von Poppen. Good pay, fairish hours, mortality rate high. Von Poppen was playing tennis on his estate in the Saar when the news broke about his secretary's eccentric display in the Danube. There's um, no record of what the score was in the tennis game. In April of 1939, von Poppen went to Turkey. The Turks who knew his past shuddered. Last spring, he went home. But he came back in May and he said, quote, I come as a dove of peace, bearing an olive branch. I assure you, you can all spend the summer pleasantly at the beaches. You have nothing to fear as long as I am here. Today, von Poppen is not there. Do you see a, a tall, thin man in black? Do you hear the solemn, slow notes of a solitary whistler? Well, here's where we park the column in the middle to touch the business of the meeting. Speaking for the sponsor tonight is Lee Bennett, newly attached to the staff here. First time we've been assigned to the same studio, and I'd like to say welcome and stuff, Lee, and good to have you with us. Thank you very much, Alan, and here's that business you spoke about. Do you know why every good cigar has a band on it? Originally, it was to keep unscrupulous dealers from substituting cheaper brands and selling them for expensive Havanas. Thus, today, your cigar band is a badge of quality. And to the men who select Harvester cigars, the Harvester cigar band stands for this. Prime, well-cured American tobaccos carefully blended with choice heart of Havana to make a smoke that is cool and light right down to the last puff. Harvesters are made by experts for experts in smoking. So why not try a harvester tomorrow? Find out for yourself why so many cigarette smokers switch to harvesters when they want a change of pace. See why harvesters are justly called America's greatest five-cent cigar value. Sometimes uh, a look backward shines the perspective for the look ahead. The batter swings his bat back before he takes a cut at the ball. A runner digs his spikes in behind him to get that push for the dash ahead. Similarly, there are times when a look back to a quick take of a forgotten yesterday gives you the spring for facing tomorrow. The best quick take there is for any of the hither yesterdays is an old newspaper. Every once in a while, Murdoch and I get the urge to dig up an old one. Of course, uh, we don't keep any old newspapers around the house these days. Murdoch snatches them away from me for salvage before I get to look at the comics. But the library keeps a neat file... And we looked in on a handful of papers published toward the end of March, three years ago. The amusement pages help establish the location of an, any moment on the graph of moving time. Snow White in the Seventh Wards. Idiot's Delight, the Beachcomber. That's what Chicagoans were seeing at the downtown motion picture houses. Stenographers on the buses were carrying copies of All This in Heaven Too and uh, Disputed Passage and Pierre Van Passen's Days of Our Years. And some of them no doubt read them. The sports pages told that the Cubs and Sox, having wound up the training period, were touring cross-country with exhibition games. Well, change the names and the places, and it's pretty much the same today. But how about these items? A full front-page weather report. It was news because March 24th of that year, 1939, was the hottest of its kind in 30 years. The temperature was 79. Elaborate discussions of the weather were not censored then. 
And the headlines, Hitler creates an empire, sets up puppet regimes for Czechs and Slovaks. United States condemns Nazi grab. German pact ties Romania. Franco takes over Madrid. British vow to aid Poles. Then uh, this interesting little item. Pétain off for Burgos as French ambassador. Marshal Henri Pétain walked through a line of French officers with sabers drawn to the International Bridge today en route to Burgos as the first French ambassador to nationalist Spain. Not many of us knew the name Pétain then. Not so well as we know it now, at any rate. There were other names not so well known then. Douglas MacArthur. Great name then it was, of course, but greater today. And how about Pearl Harbor and Corregidor and Bataan Peninsula? How many Americans knew there were such places in March of 1939? Another headline on page five in the March issues of 1939 is this one. Chamberlain will continue appeasement. Political powers unshaken. He is deeply hurt by Hitler's duplicity. A ripe understatement, that. Deeply hurt by Hitler's duplicity. Another headline. Jap insolence may grow with Hitler's victories. And this. United States consulate files protest to Japs. That was about a bombing of an American mission at Ichang. The Japs no doubt apologized for that one. Sorry, just a slip. We love you like a brother. Till we sneak up and slit Pearl Harbor's throat. And this. Japanese and Russians meet in five-hour battle. That was in 1939. They were fighting then. They're still not officially at war. And since that time, practically all the rest of the world has come into it. The Japs and Russians meet in five-hour battle. That was March 20th, 1939. It might be June 20th, 1942. And then look at the ads in that old paper. Sugar, five-pound bag, 25 cents. Eggs, 17 cents a dozen. Sales on new automobiles, refrigerators and coaxing enticements to come in and buy tires. Two and three thread, ringless silk hose, three pairs for a dollar. And the travel ads, for color and travel thrill, visit Poland, Central Europe, and the Balkan countries. Get more sun by cruising to Europe on the southern route. Use the Italian line. Like looking at an old newsreel, isn't it? Shadowy shots, stiff and jerky and unbelievable. Plan to visit Europe this summer. Don't look now, boys, but what Hitler's doing over there has nothing to do with us. Diverting recreation, this looking through an old newspaper occasionally. Here's an item was just brought in from the newswire under a new Delhi dateline. It's not new in its break of news, but it's a repeat and amplification of something that broke earlier today. Britain's plan for Indian freedom has been made public, and there are indications that the spiritual leader of the important All India Congress Party, Mohandas Gandhi, does not completely support the British War Cabinet proposals revealed by Sir Stafford Cripps. Gandhi is said to believe the British proposals would prevent India from achieving full political integrity. However, political circles think left and right-wing leaders in the All India Congress will join, the urge, join in the urge to accept the plan, and India's number two political party, the Muslim League, is generally expected to agree. The plan was made public by Sir Stafford at a news conference following a number of talks with Indian leaders. I'm reading this as The Wire reports it. The British proposal would create a new Indian Union after the war, giving it dominion status within the British Empire and the power to secede. Indian groups that did not agree to the new constitution would be allowed to agree to a separate constitution, which the British all would recognize, thus making it possible that there might be two Indian unions after the war. Until the war is over... 
Britain would continue to direct and control the vast subcontinent and her 390 million people. But in return for the promise of dominion status, the British would expect India fully to mobilize her manpower and equipment to meet the threat of a Japanese invasion. And I've been asked to remind those of you who will be available to listen at that time that Sir Stafford Cripps will broadcast tomorrow morning. You can hear him over this station at 10 o'clock, which about covers the look around for tonight, and that'll be all from Alan Scott. When you come home from work to read the paper or listen to the news on the radio, light up a Harvester cigar. You'll find that Harvester's choice, well-cured American tobaccos, blended with part of Havana, means smooth, mild, cool smoking. You'll find they help you relax while you sit back to think over world events. So let the delicious taste and fragrance of a Harvester help you ease up the easy way. Try a Harvester tonight, only a nickel, Harvester. Alan Scott with The Heart of the News is presented every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Sunday evening at 9 o'clock by the makers of Harvester Cigar. WGN, the voice of the people, Chicago. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The story behind the headlines. In cooperation with the American Historical Association, we again present Caesar Searchinger, noted foreign correspondent and writer, in an informal analysis of the news. Mr. Setchinger retraces the events of the past to help you in arriving at a fuller understanding of what is happening today. Tonight, Mr. Setchinger's subject is New Zealand as our partner in Pacific defense. Caesar Setchinger. Good evening. The agitation for a Pacific War Council, with headquarters in Washington, has reached a new stage. The question was first raised by the Australian government some time ago when Prime Minister Curtin said that Australia looked to the United States for leadership in the Pacific War. Another phase of this Pacific defense problem was Australia's demand for representation in an imperial war cabinet in London, which has now reached its sequel in the appointment of Richard G. Casey, Australian minister in Washington, to the British war cabinet as minister of state. Since last weekend, there have been discussions at the White House with Dr. Herbert Everett, the Australian minister of external affairs, who is now on a special mission to this country, and with Walter Nash, the recently appointed New Zealand minister in Washington. President Roosevelt afterwards spoke of the teamwork and contact between the three countries, meaning Australia, New Zealand, and the United States. By the end of the week, it seemed that the creation of a Pacific War Council was on the verge of formation, pending, of course, the expected concurrence of the British government. Behind these recent moves is the changed condition in the Pacific area. The old ABCD command, Australian, British, Chinese, Dutch, has, as the President put it, gone out of business with the fall of the Netherlands Indies. What forces the Dutch have left are merged with those of Australia. China is collaborating closely with the British forces in Burma, and its function in the Pacific area is now confined to its internal defense. British naval and land forces are fully occupied in other theaters of war, and General Wavell's headquarters have been moved to India. The Pacific area is therefore completely in the hands of the Pacific countries. Australia, New Zealand, and the USA. The arrival of General MacArthur in Australia and the recent activities of the Japanese in that area have focused our attention on that continent. But New Zealand is an equally vital factor in the strategy of the United Nations.
So I am going to say a few things about that. It is no less necessary to hold New Zealand as Australia itself. For if the Japanese were to land in New Zealand, they would be able to cut our communications with Australia, and they could outflank any offensive which we might launch against Japan. In such an offensive, New Zealand may become a secondary base of operations. Even now, Auckland and Wellington are chief termini of our Trans-Pacific supply lines. And New Zealand is, of course, an essential supply base, especially as regards that most vital material of war, namely food. With its extensive farming, stock-raising and dairying industries, it is capable of supplying not only its own forces, but those in Australia, if the need should arise. But it is clear that an island nation with less than one and three-quarter million inhabitants cannot defend itself against invasion without outside aid. New Zealand has a standing army of about 30,000 men, plus a considerable home guard. When conscription was introduced in the summer of 1940, 80,000 New Zealanders had already volunteered for service overseas, 4,000 of them Maoris, the original New Zealand natives. By November, 20,000 of them were abroad, including a Maori battalion which earned undying fame in the defense of Crete. I shall tell you more about the Maoris later on. The number of men enlisted to date, Prime Minister Peter Fraser told an NBC audience last Monday, is equivalent to what a force of 11 million would be in the United States. However, in a nation of 1.7 million, that is less than 150,000. So while many New Zealanders are still fighting in other theaters of war, American soldiers are being sent to reinforce the defenders of New Zealand itself. That is a good thing in more ways than one. For in this way, a number of Americans are going to become acquainted with one of the most beautiful, salubrious, and socially advanced countries in the world, and one which embodies many of the best features of our own in miniature. The size of New Zealand is somewhat less than New England plus New York State. It consists of two rather narrow islands, North Island and South Island, stretching for about a thousand miles from northeast to southwest. They are approximately as far south of the equator as our Pacific coast is north of it. So in climate, you get something like Seattle at one end and something like Los Angeles at the other. In other words, ideal. The scenery of the country is spectacular from steep snow-covered mountain ranges of over 10,000 feet, glaciers descend to within a quarter of a mile of the sea, in some places through the dense evergreen of a subtropical forest. It's a paradise for the big-game fishermen and the mountain climber. Some parts of New Zealand have reminded people of Japan, and there is even a close rival to Fujiyama, the snow-capped cone of Mount Egmont. Yet there is much of the homely atmosphere characteristic of fertile, temperate countries that appeals to the romantic European. In this, as in other respects, New Zealand is very different from its nearest neighbor, Australia, about 1,300 miles away, which is a continent the size of the United States, a place of wide open spaces and much of it arid. But the contrasts go deeper in geography. Australia has long had a vigorous nationalism of its own. New Zealand still preserves a strong sentimental attachment for England. Even third-generation New Zealanders who have never been outside the country continue to speak of England as home. Australia, in spite of its enormous sheep-raising industry, has become considerably industrialized in the last two decades. New Zealand still remains predominantly a country of farms and pastures. It has, in fact, been described as a kind of outlying dairy farm for Great Britain. 
There are also important historical and political differences between Australia and New Zealand. Australia has adopted a federal constitution based in many respects on our own. Consequently, it has six state governments as well as a federal government. New Zealand, though it formerly had provincial governments, abolished them and set up a single unitary government for the whole country. In other respects, however, their political institutions are similar. Both are self-governing dominions with a prime minister and a cabinet responsible to parliament. The British king is represented by a governor-general whose functions are purely formal. The story of New Zealand settlement is practically unique. It was the result of an idealist's dream. In the early years of the 19th century, one Edward Gibbon Wakefield had a vision of solving England's social economic problems by a systematic overseas colonization. His idea was to transplant a replica of English society from the country squire and the urban capitalist to the farmhand, artisan, and clerk to somewhere overseas. The enterprise was to be financed from the sale of land duly acquired from the natives. Christian benevolence and social enlightenment were to do the rest. After a preliminary experiment in South Australia, Wakefield's eye lighted on New Zealand, which Cook had once tried to annex for King George III. But the British government, still remembering all the trouble with the North American colonies, wasn't any more helpful to Wakefield than it had been to Captain Cook. Until, in, in 1840, a rival French settlement company was threatening to get ahead of the British. Thereupon, Queen Victoria's ministers gave their blessing and signed a treaty with the native Maori chiefs, which transferred sovereignty to the British crown. The Maoris had already been affected by Christianity, and it was their trust in the Christian missionaries that induced them to sign. Wakefield's dream to transplant a cross-section of English society didn't altogether come true, but his careful organization of the colonists has left a permanent mark. It facilitated the orderly settlement of the uncultivated land of the country. In consequence, New Zealand has always been much more a country of small individual farmers in contrast to the vast sheep and cattle ranches of Australia, in the early days at least. And the installation of Wakefield, a reformer, lives on today in the outstandingly progressive social legislation in which New Zealand has been a pioneer. It, has, it may be said to have had its New Deal about 50 years ago. In the 1890s, New Zealand's government established such things as old age pensions and widows' pensions, family allowances, government loans to homeowners, government-operated insurance companies, etc. Women's suffrage was adopted in New Zealand many years before here. And recently, under the Labour government, which came into power in 1935, there have been other important measures of social welfare, including the establishment of an all-embracing system of social security, including unemployment, health and old age, and medical care. As the result of its infant welfare program, New Zealand has the lowest rate of infant mortality in the world. Wealth in New Zealand is better distributed than in most countries. Real incomes of the lower middle classes, that is, incomes in terms of purchasing power, are on the average higher than those of corresponding groups in America. New Zealand is the youngest white man's country in the world. Up to 1840, it was inhabited not by primitive aborigines like Australia, but by a relatively cultured and decidedly warlike branch of the Polynesian race, the Maori. The Maoris migrated to New Zealand from somewhere in the central Pacific from five to six hundred years ago, in canoes, mind you, an incredible feat of seamanship. For centuries they managed to resist white settlement, except for some missionaries in the north.
all of the islands had been discovered by the Dutch navigator Tasman as far back as 1642. Although the white man did not settle in New Zealand until 200 years later, his treatment of the Maori uh, was only somewhat better than his treatment of the American Indian over here. It was the same old story of thousands of acres of valuable land turned over the white settlers for a few guns or blankets. Though eventually the New Zealand government set up a land court to protect the Maori's remaining heritage. It was largely because of disputes over land that various Maori tribes embarked on fierce wars against the settlers in the 1860s. They fought with great skill and bravery. In one case, when the Maoris were surrounded and called upon to surrender, they sent out an envoy with a message which has since then become the motto of a New Zealand regiment, Ake Ake Kia Ka, we will fight on forever and ever. On one occasion, having taken the Christian teachings seriously, they actually stopped fighting on Sunday, and they felt bitterly betrayed when the British troops took advantage of this to launch an attack. In the days of fighting, the Maori warrior earned the respect and admiration of the British soldier. Today, every New Zealander has a genuine fondness for the Maori citizen. To have Maori blood in your veins is a distinction. After a period of decline, the Maoris have found their feet in the new order of things. Their numbers are increasing, and they share in the possession of the land and the nation's prosperity. Maoris sit in Parliament, some have risen to cabinet rank. The Maori soldier is as famous for his valor today as his forefather was. He has served the British Empire in the last war, and he is fighting for his country's democracy today. For there is no doubt in anybody's mind that New Zealand deserves the name of democracy as much as any country on earth, and the responsibility for defending it must naturally be shared by us. It is true that we in this country haven't been very conscious of this younger sister democracy across the seas. In peacetime, international relations are apt to be based very largely on trade, on export and import trade. And while we have sold five times as much to New Zealand as she has sold to us, a country of 1.7 million can absorb only just so much. Not till two months ago did the two countries think it worthwhile to exchange diplomatic envoys. But the eminence of these two men indicates how important these relations have suddenly become. New Zealand has sent us Peter Nash, the intellectual leader of the Labour Party, and until recently, the dominating figure in the Cabinet. We have sent no less a person than Patrick J. Hurley, former Secretary of War. It's clear that New Zealand's importance in the world struggle cannot be measured by her size alone. If we are to have Pacific Council, War Council, New Zealand is as indispensable in it as Australia and the United States. And when we consider the principles involved in this war, New Zealand stands out as a shining example of all the things we are fighting for, genuine dynamic democracy and the freedom of man. Good night. You've been listening to Caesar Sechinger, whom we presented in cooperation with the American Historical Association. Next Sunday evening, Caesar Sechinger will be back with another story behind the headlines.